Up next, Authentically Detroit presents a live podcast with CS4 Detroit Steering Committee members Tawana Petty, Dr. Chanel Beebe, and Kalisha Davis to discuss computer science education for K-12 students and how it can benefit Detroit. But first, this week's hot takes from Detroitography, Bridge Detroit, and Chalkbeat Detroit. Is it time for Detroit City Council redistricting and student use of artificial intelligence software stirs discussion in Michigan school districts? Keep it locked. Authentically Detroit starts after these messages. Hey, it's Stephen Henderson from WDET and Bridge Detroit. If you love listening to Orlando and Donna's incisive interviews and conversations on the Authentically Detroit podcast, I hope you'll also listen to the podcast I host, Detroit Today from WDET on Detroit's NPR station. Detroit Today is a daily podcast where I talk with community leaders, elected officials, and residents of Detroit, the region, and the state about politics and the values that animate our communities. Listen to Detroit Today every day on your favorite podcast app. Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from Detroit's east side at the Stoudemire, inside of the east side community network headquarters. We are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you so much for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people in the city of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. So today we are hosting a special live podcast celebrate the launch of CS4 Detroit Initiative. Kalisha Davis or for the Caper Center, along with Tawana Petty and Dr. Chanel BB of the CS, CS4 Detroit Steering Committee are here with us to discuss the importance of computer science education for K through 12 students in Detroit. Kalisha, Tawana, and Dr. Chanel, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Oh, Woo-hoo! Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us so much. Well, welcome back, Kalisha. Thank you. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Welcome back, Tawana Petty. What up, though? I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) We're happy here. And for the first time, welcome Dr. Chanel Beebe. Thank you for coming on. World premiere. Finally, premiere. World premiere. (laughs) Premiere. It's Monday, y'all. How's the day finally, y'all? How's this week going so far this weekend? How y'all feel? Kalisha, how you doing? I'm doing all right. A little tired, but I'm so glad to be here with family and to be in this conversation. I have amazing colleagues at my side, so that definitely gives me energy. Lots mm. of wonderful people. Yeah, we work. family tonight. We family tonight. We want that to come across. Dr. BB. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's, it's a Monday. I work a for Monday. a living and I feel like it. <laughs> but I get to do really good work. My so. BB sister. Yes. Well, I haven't seen you since Miami. Right? We need to get back to that we beach. We need to. I oh, know. Let's go. ASAP. Um, White sand. And y'all didn't take me. Oh, right. we sorry. We love you, Kalisha. Right. <laughs> Tawana Petty, welcome back. How you doing? I'm so happy to be here. The illustrious. Listen, y'all, I'm over here a little jealous. Uh, Miami? 
I was feeling good until I heard about Miami. Don't, don't but listen to her. Know, she just came I mean, back from Puerto Rico. Right. She was in Puerto <laughs> Rico, Switzerland, Switzerland now, girl. doing the thing that Tawana Petty does. You know, it's so funny. I was talking to Donna while you were away. I was talking about you behind your back, Tawana Petty. And I said that there are few people in Detroit that I say are the best of us. Mm-hmm. And you are in that number, Tawana yes. Petty. You are sure. the best of us. Absolutely. So I feel the same so about you. So happy y'all. to have you All back y'all. on. Thank <laughs> you. Except for when you go to Puerto Rico without us. <laughs> <laughs> and then you become the, the, medium, the medium of us. <laughs> the medium of us. <laughs> the medium. <laughs> Donna Givens Davidson, how you feel? Well, as I was telling you earlier today, um, I've been really busy um, on various panels and speaking engagements. You and I had two speaking engagements together on Saturday. On Saturday, and that and wasn't even the extent of the speaking engagements we had on Saturday. We no, was all well, over it was the extent of speaking engagements I had on Saturday. <laughs> you, however, are a celebrity, and I just want everybody to know that celebrity takes work. I have never been more tired than trying to be like Orlando P. Bailey. Okay, wear yourself so, out with ooh, that. I, right. I, you know, listen, giving your opinions and with, with a smile on your face and try to make people not hate you while they have to listen to you is hard work, okay? Tell the truth. <laughs> well, you did a great job at it. I, I, I texted Donna on Saturday because we ended up doing two events together. I had a couple more on Saturday to get to. Uh, and I said to her, I love being her partner mm-hmm. because she shows up in a way that is so graceful, even when you tire. And she's a CEO of a whole organization. She is a whole professor at Columbia University. You want your Saturdays to yourself, but she volunteered her Saturday. And she did so gracefully and with power and of course, the knowledge, dropping, dropping gems on all day long, all day long. I had to follow her at our first event. And I was like, I don't need to talk. She just, she said everything about what we do. Come on. You know what? See, and I love being Orlando's partner because then when he gets done talking, people actually like us. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they already like us. Okay, y'all look, it's, it's time for Hot Takes where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. So for hot takes, is it time for Detroit City Council redistricting? This is by a friend to the show, Alex B. Hill of Detroitography. The short answer is yes, it is time to reassess city council boundaries. The city charter calls for updated districts 120 days before the next city primary election. The release of the census 2020 data files gave the city a pass up until now. The 2020 decennial census data was released to state governments for redistricting efforts in August 2021, but the city election in 2021 was already well underway. The next city election for mayor and mayor and city council seats will be in 2025. Are y'all ready? I don't think we're ready yet. For the 2012 city charter, the city planning commission did the work of creating and proposing council districts, which would then be approved by the three-member Detroit election commission. That consists of the city council president, City Clerk Winfrey and Corporation Council Con, uh, uh, Conrad Mallet. The city has until around February 2025 to finish a council redistricting process before the April 2025 city primary election, prior to the general election that will happen in that November. So here's part of what the statute says. Geographical basis for electing city council members. Number one, at large district council established in the city and one member shall be elected from each non-at-large district. New district boundaries created within 120 days of the city primary election shall 
be effective after the general election. City Council shall establish district wards that are nearly equal population as practicable, contiguous, compact, and in accordance with any other criteria permitted by law. District wards shall be a proportion in subsequent years as required by and in accordance with the Home Rule City Act and other applicable law. So here's the commentary. According to the Home Rule City Act, districts must be drawn based on a specific set of criteria, which includes equal population, compactness, and contiguous boundaries. Additional language has been inserted to allow for consideration and use of factors not necessarily prohibited by law. Lastly, pursuant to the Home Rule Act, district boundaries are required to be redrawn after every decennial census. Donna, what say you? So uh, on Monday of last week, we found out about this um, requirement that the city of Detroit actually has a, um, a, a drop dead date of the end of January 2024, the city council to approve whatever their new um, district boundaries are going to be. And that is because it has to go through the process of getting other people supporting it. And if a city council person wishes to run in a newly drawn district, this gives them time to move to a newly drawn district. So we found out about this on Monday of last week. We had a meeting here at the Stoudemire the next day with the LEAP Coalition. People showed up in large numbers. It was really surprising to me. We ran out of food. And um, people were really passionate about the changes. One of the things that we found is that District 4, where we're located on the east side, lost more population than any other district in the city. It's not surprising because when you don't invest in communities, people leave. It's also not surprising because we have so many very low-income communities among us and poor people are leaving more than anybody else because our city does not, have, it does not invest in the needs of people who have low income. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing displacement and it's really a concern. So a lot of people wanted to talk about that in addition to redrawing boundaries. Um, we decided that we'd like for most of LEAP to remain together. And so um, some LEAP members said, we're in District 5. District 5 is part of downtown, and we feel as though we don't get the same kind of attention that downtown does. Now, not all of them felt that way. There were some people who said we feel very well represented. And so the map that we are going to propose to the city, and we have a chance to propose a different map, will include those parts of District 4 or 5 that feel underrepresented coming into District 4. Mm. And we reached out to the very Alex Hill, who shared this information with us months ago. Friend to the show. Friend to the show. We reached out to Alex Hill, and he has been working overtime. Um, he got me my last map at about midnight last night. Um, to, and we still need another map. But anyway, he's been working overtime to help us um, come up with a counterproposal that complies with all of these requirements. And it's not easy, but I'm excited about the fact that the community is fired up and wants to be engaged in decision making to ensure that their council representation is fair and equitable mm -hmm. and that people with similar needs on our east side of Detroit are able to work together to make similar demands on the city council representation. Has any of the city council districts in the decennial census show uh, population gains? No. No, I mean, the city of Detroit lost population. Um, on the west side, they less, lost less than on the east side. Um, no east side jokes, folks. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> was not and we mean that. We mean that. But I mean, the city is shrinking. Um, and that is even in keeping with the understanding that downtown is growing, but the city is shrinking in large measure. And I always say this, for every micro studio you build for that one person, 
a household of four people is moving out. What is a micro studio? Can somebody explain? Is it a hotel room? Uh, it's a, is it a dorm room? It's two to three hundred square feet. It's a two to three hundred square feet. So I think that a regular studio is four to five hundred, six hundred square feet, and a micro studio is smaller than that. And we do have some new developments that include micro studios. We have a whole lot of new studio apartments being developed, and a lot mm -hmm. of those are being sub. All of them are being subsidized by us. Let's be clear. All of the housing that's being built in Detroit is being subsidized by taxpayers. Mm -hmm. But in addition to those subsidies, most of it is going in the downtown area and places like that. And we don't have time for that discussion. That's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important for us to understand that we are not building to retain Detroit's families. Right. And many Detroiters are outraged that homes that are brick homes that are in seemingly good condition are being torn down unnecessarily on their blocks. And we don't have any policy or plan to replace those houses yeah and so that's a concern yeah, yeah. i have a lot of concerns around like the property value as a function of a lot of this rebuilding because we're not you know we don't make stuff the way we used to and also there's very little respect for the the culture and history that was in the brick homes that we have so it's like even as we're replacing these homes the quality is not there the feel of it is not there and especially in the east side i was wondering about the contiguous part of that requirement um because a lot of these you know Families have been holding down blocks, right? But that doesn't necessarily get represented in the district map mm. the same way. It doesn't. You, yeah. raise, you raise such a great point. I want to thank you for that point because people don't always understand the amount of investment that Detroiters make in their blocks and where they live. Mm -hmm. We have Detroiters that are holding down whole vacant land blocks, but mm -hmm. also houses they've purchased and they're renting out to other people because they don't want to see the neighborhoods go down. Um, I do have a concern about the land value tax because of that, because we have encouraged how many people to purchase vacant purchase lots for lot. all mm -hmm. kinds of reasons, including urban farming. Mm -hmm. And so if we shift the tax burden onto those folks to relieve the tax burden on millionaires or billionaires downtown, and that's who's really going to benefit. Right. No offense, because I'm not trying to minimize money, but if you're saving $40 a year on your tax bill, that's not worth the change in law. Right. The people mm -hmm. who's really are going to benefit are going to be people whose property tax bills are much, much higher to the extent they have not already been abated by our government. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's who this land value tax is really um, structured to benefit. And the people who have just taken a whole block and turned it into a um, park for their children and the mm -hmm. children on the block, they're going to be harmed. How does that land value tax connect to the redistricting with the city council? It doesn't connect. It doesn't. It's okay. a separate proposal that the mayor is trying to get um, moved through Lansing. So far, Lansing has not bitten. Okay. One of the things is they added a new provision that said that this would only apply to, I think, municipalities Cities with, with more, more than, than 500,000 people. Which is only Detroit. Which is only Detroit mm -hmm. and Michigan. So this is a Detroit-only tax. Mm -hmm. And I tried reading the legislation at the request of a community member, and I consider myself to be fairly intelligent. And after I, the third run, I was like, I don't understand what this is saying. <laughs> so then I reached out to my friend who is an attorney who reads legalese. And I said, can you interpret this? And he said, let me get back to you. And I'm still waiting. You know mm -hmm. I love you. and You know who you are. But we don't know how to interpret that. And anytime people write legislation that is that hard to interpret, right. I believe reason. it's done for a reason. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, the only, the only other thing that I would say, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but, you know, for a long time, Mayor Duggan was going around and said, you know, judge my success based upon my increasing the population in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And we know the decennial census had its issues. It was mm -hmm. in 2020. 
uh, Donald Trump did not want the census to happen. There was a lot going on. It was also an election year. We know that the city of Detroit fought the election along with uh, our Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib. But here we are. Here we are these months later. We have not heard mm-hmm. a, a real official response to mm-hmm. this promise that Mayor Duggan made all these years ago. We continue to lose population, and mm-hmm. there is no accountability for that at the executive level. You know, it always yeah. gets me elected officials and their denials. You they deny they lost the race or they deny, the, deny they lost people. Mm-hmm. And all those denials don't make sense to me. There's not a lot of trust, however, and this did come up with the meeting in the census numbers. And some mm-hmm. community members said, well, why are we even using the census numbers? Because those are the numbers of record. And we don't get to change the rules just because the numbers don't make sense. There's two issues around census numbers that I can observe. One of them is we counted during a pandemic and people were in hiding. Number two, it was they, they moved to a more digital kind of counting mechanism. And right. you can talk about that, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you some questions about What a 30-plus percent non-broadband accessing residential population. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the, you always have trust. People... Mm-hmm you know, don't want to do anything, especially certain people don't want to do anything over the internet, right? Mm-hmm. The internet is going to steal all my information. And then the third thing is that a lot of people do not feel compelled to respond to this kind of thing. They don't trust the government. They don't believe right. that me counting myself is going to result in the government spending more money on me. And therefore you have that kind of resistance where the community was not really in line. And I heard many people say, why do I care if I'm counting? Right. And so between um, I'm going to say disengagement from the political process and the counting process. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the term apathy, as well as feelings about technology, as well as the pandemic. We know the numbers are probably off, mm-hmm. but those are the numbers we have. And mm-hmm. I still believe, even with those numbers being off, that we have lost population. You can feel it. Yeah. You can feel it. All right, we're going to go to the next story. Student use of artificial intelligence software stirs discussion in Michigan School District. This is by Ethan McCauley for Chalkbeat Detroit. The Detroit Public Schools Community District is updating its technology use policies to address concerns about the impact of artificial intelligence tools on student learning. An early draft of the revised language says that the use of artificial intelligence and natural language processing software tools without the express permission consent of a teacher is considered to undermine the learning and problem-solving skills that are essential to a student's academic success and that the staff is tasked to develop in each student. Unauthorized student use of such tools is a form of plagiarism. According to the draft language, which appears in the staff technology use policy but applies to students, Newly powerful artificial intelligence software has generated a wave of publicity in recent months for creating a photorealistic illustration of Pope Francis in a puffy white coat, for example, or composing fake pop songs purportedly by Drake and The Weeknd. It has also stirred debate among school officials and educators about the impact and risks in the classroom. One tool, ChatGPT, can write essays and solve mathematical equations based on users' prompts. And across Michigan, educators are looking at the potential for misuse. 
is really relevant to what's happening to the district. DPSCD Superintendent Nikolai Vitti said of the policy at a school board committee meeting on Wednesday, there's a lot of conversation about tools that students now have access to that are sort of changing the landscape of writing and essays and classrooms assi classroom assignments. The DPS policy draft language doesn't ban the use of programs like ChatGPT outright. Rather, it says that students can use these tools to conduct research, analyze data, translate text into different languages, and correct grammatical mistakes as long as they have teacher permission. Asha Mia, a senior at Detroit's Martin Luther King Jr. Senior High School, said she hasn't used or learned about ChatGPT or other artificial intelligence tools, but she would favor the district setting restrictions on how students use that technology. She considers plagiarism, plagiarism to be the number one problem at MLK. Wow, with some of her teachers deducting points from every student's grade if other students are found to have cheated on the assignment. Well, that doesn't make sense. In other cases, they've just thrown away students' papers. Now I've seen that. MLK Robotics teacher Carrie Russell said that her students have not caught on to ChatGPT, but that it's only a matter of time before they do. Many are already savvy with other AI-powered apps such as Photomath and Wolfgram Alpha, Russell said. Donna, this is loaded. What say you? I have a couple things. I, I really want to turn to some of these tech experts over here. That's so much to say. Um, but <laughs> the, the two things I want to say. One is that, as you pointed out, I teach. And I turned in, I had first essays come in, and I was like, wow, these are the best essays students have ever written. And, you know, they were just so good. They got everything right. And it could be the students, but, the, you know, I do wonder whether or not, you know, um, artificial intelligence could have played a role in the brilliance of my students this year, no offense students. But the other thing is that, unfortunately, I think it's people say that, you know, machines can detect plagiarism, and I'd like to hear from you whether that's true. I feel as though African-American students are more likely to be accused of plagiarism than any other students. And so I, I fear for black girls who get told that they fake something because the teachers never assess them as being intelligent. Can you sort of give me an understanding of whether that's a real concern? And not you taking up points from my paper because somebody else cheated. What in the world? Exactly. Yeah, what there's a lot happening in that hot take. It's, it's super hot. I'm, I'm going to let Tawana, because we, we've had conversations about this. Um, I think with the advent of AI, it's requiring us to get a lot more creative. Um, it's also requiring us to get a lot more intentional about how we address things. I think it's easy to develop policies that put the onus on the student or the teacher or the parent. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with this, we're gonna have to burn the candle at every end. Uh, I think fundamentally what we've been needing is a little bit more understanding and regulation in terms of how these things function. Um, Tawana and I have talked a lot about how, you know, most things you build, you're required to be able to understand the ecosystem that it fits into, right? So. You make a disease, somebody understands the vaccine. You make a gun, somebody knows how to put a safety on it. For some reason, ChatGPT hasn't come with the same counter technology. Um, and even the counter technology that's come is not meeting the same standards of checking that I think we would expect. Um, and that's a problem. And that's not a problem that teachers and students can address in and of themselves. That's a problem that I think we need to champion further up the chain. Um, because it's going to get really awkward and uncomfortable if there aren't solid technology solutions to combat what technology has already allowed us to do. Yeah, so I, I just I want to follow up on that, though, because I don't like the term impl 
implicit bias, but we already know that teachers have bias. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering the extent to which bias will exacerbate that problem for some students and not for others. Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So we had a weapon, essentially, uh, launched onto our communities with no federal regulation. And so the reason why I want to say it's, been, it's weaponized is uh, I like to quote Safia Noble, uh, who, ta who uh, talks about the uh, gamification of the surveillance state. And so we have all these technologies that, if used as tools with proper restrictions, could be useful. However, what's happening is these same tech companies that are launching these technologies upon our community are also the ones who want to give us a solution. So they want to be the company that launches the thing that the teachers use to check the students as well. So each iteration of that ramps up surveillance. So it always leads to black and brown, poor white communities having further and further surveillance technologies or surveillance from adults and teachers because now you're not able to use this tool in the ways that academia is promoting this tool being used. So if someone you know, at Columbia, right, it, you, you're talking about students, if they, uh, they don't, everybody doesn't have you as a teacher, right, <laughs> um, Donna? So you have, like, universities and stuff that are encouraging a lot of times uh, this innovative, creative collaboration between Dolly2, ChatGPT4, et cetera, to better these skills that uh, young people have. And then you have in Detroit, where the kids don't have access to these systems, and once they access the systems, they'll be accused of cheating. But that's the culture of education. That's why I always say there's a difference between schooling and education. I learned that from the late Grace Lee Boggs. Oh. The culture of schooling is an individualized, competitive, only certain people can escalate within the chain type of system. And then education is saying we have all these things around us mm -hmm. that we can have access to that help us cultivate our skills and our critical thinking. Unfortunately, ChatGPT came into our universe without that analysis, without the regulation, without the understanding of our educators. And so now we're playing catch up and we're trying to put out the fire and we're not pursuing the arsonists, which are the tech companies mm -hmm. that are going to benefit on both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, Y'all see, see why I love listening to Tawana <laughs> speak. I swear, I just like music to my ears. That's beautifully put. Oh, and, you know, I think, about, I think about the fact of standardized testing, right? Standardized mm -hmm. testing is, um, is a lie. It produces... Um, you know, yeah. false information about the capacity of some students mm -hmm. to learn. And then the companies that produce standardized tests then produce test prep, test prep. And then they sell that. And so you get paid on both ends. And then they sell textbooks. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, I think we have commodified information and knowledge in such a way that um, it still is available to people who have more money and more resources and more social capital, and this will only exacerbate that. What do you think, Kalisha? I mean, I'm concerned that the approach is so punitive, like the, the assumption is that students are going to take advantage of these resources in ways that well, they'll be cheating and doing inappropriate things in the classroom, because that's not necessarily the case. Like, mm -hmm. sometimes young people just want to utilize resources so they can expand all of the opportunities to learn. So, you know, can we start with that first, mm -hmm. figure out how it can be utilized, be utilized well in the classroom mm -hmm. and create strategies that are informed by, by parents, by students, by teachers, so that it's, you know, it's a more well-rounded mm -hmm. 
um, understanding of, okay, when you enter into the classroom, this is how you're gonna use this particular tool. These are the expectations that we have as a community on you know how how and when um, we utilize these types of resources. So that's that's I think the first problem that I have yeah. with and, and sometimes you know black children are just smart, right? Absolutely. And they just write really well. Most and this comes this hits me very personally because I was accused in high school of cheating on the ACT mm-hmm. by my high school counselor because my grades did not match my test score. Can mm-hmm. we talk about cheating? Do you, mm-hmm. do you mind? No, please. So the uh, uh, back to the culture of schooling, right? In, the, in a, a more beautiful, humane world, right, we would be encouraging students to share knowledge with one another and Absolutely. to not leave the, the kid next to you behind, right? Mm-hmm. We're still in the survival of the fittest, although that's been debunked, right? We know that we need mutual support and mutual aid and collaborative learning, but yet we sit our kids in these individualized seatings and we tell them, it's not your problem whether the other 31 students in the classroom fail or not. You worry about yourself and you climb that ladder and you get up and you get out of here, especially in Detroit. You're taught, you grow up, you get out, you get out of here. There's nothing you can make about yourself as a Detroit student. Mm -hmm. And then you're taught that the other people, if they're not doing what you're doing, then they're failures. And so we have to interrogate the schooling system and how abusive it is as it is and, and remove the notion of cheating I have a desire as a human being to help my fellow student create a mechanism where I can help that student. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't be pursuing these exterior technologies to replace their ways of learning and and doing well in school. And so it's just so much. It's so loaded when we think about like what cheating means uh, in the academic system, you know. I mean, it it really prepares us for what America is. And it is this capitalistic society that rewards rugged individualism that is also a tentacle of white supremacy. Yes. Right. And so we when we grow up and we learn, uh, we learn from amazing people like Grace Lee Boggs right. and amazing people like Tawana Petty. We but, go on this journey to begin to unlearn all of this mm-hmm. stuff that we that have become mm-hmm. a part of us and in our subconscious for years and years. I love we create the mechanism for sharing. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what I meant when I said we got to get more creative because I'm okay. an educator as well. And, you know, as a millennial who's also now teaching people who are significantly younger than me, I remember how I felt when my professors got too specific about how we could use Google, right, when Google first came out. Um, And it was like, oh, that's cheating. And after a while, it was like, oh, you actually need to know how to use Google. So for me, as an educator, what that means is that I I can no longer assess my students based off things they can do alone somewhere I can't see them, right? So what I've had to do is redesign my courses to make it such that there are activities that happen in the classroom that you have to do live. And even if you cheat on all the homework, I know for a fact you got what I needed you to learn out this class because we did it live together. You know, and it's, and it's requiring me to be more creative about what that in-person time feels like because I know that collaboration outside the classroom looks different now. I know that research outside the classroom looks different now. But I know I need you to know, I need you to know these three things. So let me make sure those three things happen in front of my face with me, right? And not just assume that you're gonna go and do the homework correctly. Now I have a lot of privilege in how I get to teach, right? Because I'm teaching one class and those type of things. But I do think. If we stop with the very colonial mindset of how education can happen and how um, rewards or non-rewards need to be given, then it requires all of us to be really intentional about like, what is this real objective here? Am I actually trying to make the students feel small? Am I trying to control? Am I trying to avoid having to rewrite a thing? Am I trying to 
uh, go around the fact that I don't have money to really think about how to care for these students for real? Or am I actually trying to figure out what this new environment needs to look like, given the fact that these tools and these weapons are here, right? And we can't avoid that, especially if we expect our students to be able to compete and thrive. But, but you know, speaking of thriving, some of the best employees are not the most competitive employees. Mm -hmm. Some of the best employees are really good at collective learning and teamwork. Absolutely. And um, teamwork almost works at odds with this idea of compete yes. and thrive. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a student, I, I, I went to U of M, right? And every, every test I took, I actually went to the University of Michigan with my first cousin, right? We were, lived in the same dorm, grew up together. And we would take a class together, and I mean, we'd be like, I hope she didn't do well, because if she thought the class was doing well, and I realized how sick it was for me mm -hmm. to wish my cousin did not do well. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped feeling that way after like one or two tests, because I realized it was changing who I was. It right. was turning mm -hmm. me into this person who wanted to outcompete this person who I loved, my mm -hmm. blood. And I feel as though this society T tells us to do that and then we get in the workplace and as an employer I can tell you that sometimes my C students are my best employees because my mm -hmm. C students are not the ones who are trying to outdo everybody they're tr the ones who are trying to make things work mm -hmm. and I think that's what I'm hearing also from you Tuan is this idea of collective knowledge collective mm -hmm. knowledge building that mm -hmm. we don't exist in this world as individuals we exist in this world as a part of a family and a community in such mm -hmm. a way that if we can share our collective skills and knowledge then we can all be better. Mm -hmm. And we're all good at different things. I love team projects, and so I assign for my students team projects because I want you to bring whatever you bring to the table so that you yep. can have something more beautiful. Yep. Within the school district right now, within schooling, you still have to have letter grades and test scores for mm -hmm. everything, and so teaching children how to be successful within that frame is important, but also I think teaching them the, 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 the weaknesses or the failures of that frame is also really important. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the East Side have access to exclusive services in the Wellness Network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroiters rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that ask the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters. For Detroiters. We're going to move on to our feature interview because I'm excited to get to talk about CS for Detroit. So for the past few years, Kalisha Davis with the Kapoor Center. Am I saying it right? Kapoor? Yes. Kapoor, because I'm self-conscious about how to say this. Kapoor Center has been conceptualizing a national strategy advocating for equity in K-12 computer science education. 
Since August of 2022, the work has been more centrally focused here in Detroit. The effort known as CS for Detroit Initiative is a community-centered approach designed to eliminate barriers to meaningful and sustainable learning opportunities in K-12 computer science education, both in school and out. This project, informed by the CS for Detroit Steering Committee, is a multi-year initiative developed by a group of diverse stakeholders deeply committed to ensuring that Black, Latinx, Native Americans, and other historically marginalized students have sustainable access to high-quality learning that is culturally responsive and student-centered. Powered by the Kapoor Foundation, Google.org, Song Foundation, and CS for All's Accelerator Program, this initiative aims to champion lasting transformation in Detroit through deep investment in K-12 computer science education and partnership with the Detroit Public Schools Community District. Tawana Petty and Dr. Chanel Beebe, two members of the steering committee, a collective of change makers who lent their ideas and knowledge to this endeavor, developed an op-ed examining the need for black and brown students to have more CS educational learning experiences and how this relates to amplifying and advocating for the ethics of computing. So we are beyond excited to talk about this, but Kalisha, I want to start with you to talk about how you even began the work to sort of ascertain the need for something like this in the city of Detroit. What sort of gaps and barriers did you identify early on where you knew this work had to include this kind of intervention? That's a great question. So in 2020, I started this journey with the KPOR um, Center. Um, our chief research officer uh, approached me uh, about the possibility of working with the organization. And I do not have a background in computer science education or tech or uh, related fields. And But I love the, the idea of bringing together a community to focus on the possibilities around something like this. So it started off with conversations with leaders, you know, throughout the city, throughout the state to try to determine, like, what type of environment um, do we have in Detroit that could lend itself to this type of work? And there was a lot of enthusiasm from organizations that wanted to try to help ensure that uh, computer science uh, education specifically is something that could be amplified. Um, of, of the 109 uh, schools across the city, there are about 33 of them that currently have computer science education courses uh, within the school district. And so we, we looked at this in a few different ways. We tried to figure out if we should start on a state level, uh, if we might engage other communities. Um, but the majority of the people that I was in conversation with were based here. Um, and that includes um, steering committee member, Dr. Amani Adav um, from Michigan State University. He rolled his sleeves up. He's one of our national advisors as well and uh, spent a lot of time with me in conversation with um, a number of different like-minded people to determine like what um, what would be best and how we could um, orchestrate this work. So we brought together um, the two these two um, amazing women um, sitting next to me um, and several others for there are ten members of the steering committee um, that represent uh, re uh, ideas and um, and opinions and strategies around. Um, tech, um, innovation, computing, and the, and the value that it can bring to communities. And uh, we've been really thrilled to be able to, to launch about a month ago as mm. of mm. a couple of days ago. So, you know, I keep hearing about all of these boot camps, tech boot camps, and it feels mm -hmm. like the, the city is just flooded with all of these opportunities. And yet, 
there's still this gap. Yeah. Can you explain how, in light of all of this investment and all of these people doing boot camps, why we still need this in Detroit? It's about building relationships and a coalition around this effort. So I think that was the part that was missing, that you have people that are you know, offering different um, classes for adults. There are certain things happening within the school system. There are out-of-school time organizations that are hosting um, coding uh, camps and boot camps and all these various things. But we didn't have an overarching strategy to bring together all these people to advocate for policy creation that supports, um, you know, comprehensive forms of learning, culturally responsive practices and learning. Uh, we didn't have uh, resources coming from, um, like, comprehensively from um, philanthropic organizations to help fuel those efforts. So uh, this is the beginning of of KPOR's um, interest is really placed based to bring the entire um, model around around ecosystem work let, to the city. So it begins with K-12 computer science education. So let me let me rephrase that. Mm -hmm. Is boot camping the best, is a boot camp the best way to teach computer skills or is there something more comprehensive that's needed for students to really understand um, and, and succeed in that field? I think there needs to be options. So I think the boot camp mm -hmm. model, you see it so much because it does work really well, especially for adult learners and adult entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, because it allows you to build like a cohort model, um, but also to have a lot of um, experiential learning. So it works really well for certain groups at certain times. Um, and also there are a lot of different types of learners, there are a lot of different phases that life of life in which computer science education can be useful. Um, I do think that, you know, as we continue to do our work, what we're finding is that a lot of things that are really useful might look like a boot camp, but it doesn't necessarily need to be called that. Um, and a lot of the work that we've been doing on this committee, and especially within this op-ed, is to be really intentional about the language we use to describe these experiences, because the, that the language includes or excludes, right? So, for especially in technology, you're used to people who are who feel like they're good at coding, who already have this like orientation to what I would consider a pretty masculine version of computer science, where it's boot camp, it's hard, it's this, it's that, right? But then there are a whole other side of us who also use computational thinking skills, who think systemically, who are able to stretch the dollar, who are able to make sure everybody's taken care of, but might not have that same language to connect with on these flyers, right? So a lot of the work that I think we've been trying to do is just to really bring to the table what are all the stakeholders, right? What are all the people who could benefit from these things? And how do we help each other to design um, more relevant experiences for these people so that your options are not just something that feels really hard, feels really tech, feels really Silicon Valley, because this is place-based, right? Detroit is not Silicon Valley. Detroit is not California, right? This is a specific type of mindset. And you also talked about young people not learning like adults, and I think that that's a really important point to point out. We had a young person graduate from here and go into Grand, is it Grand Circus? Mm -hmm. Yes, he went to Grand Circus, and he stayed there for about three days and was overwhelmed by the expectations there and mm -hmm. left and never went back. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like there has to be a better way to usher in that kind of learning. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of pathways. I mean, for the past 10 years, um, the focus on you know education has been through college and earning degrees in computer science, but that's not necessarily um, a viable choice for a number of people that are interested in learning and taking advantage of these opportunities. And so exactly what Chanel said, it's about taking advantage of options. And also making sure that you're presenting more than one option. Because I think 
Mm-hmm. I know for sure from both me and Tawana when we got on the board, we were immediately like, I'm not really here to make a bunch of more programmers, right? I'm not here mm-hmm. to turn Detroit into the, the hub for the next Apple and Google. Mm-hmm. We're here to make sure that the, the ways of thinking mm-hmm. can be useful however they need to be used, which like Kalisha was just saying, doesn't necessarily require a degree. It, mm-hmm. it requires a good knowledge of mm-hmm. what these things can be, but also a really in-depth and close relationship with what the problems are in your community so that you can provide a service or provide a thing that may or may not require Google or somebody else to fund it. Yeah, Dr. Chanel and Kalisha, I heard both of you uh, give a nod to this uh, kind of programming being localized and place-based. Tawana, why does something like this matter in the city of Detroit? Yeah, so I was genuinely attracted to this opportunity and, um, and honored to be invited because of the pursuit of racial equity and centering ethics in a way that didn't just say we need more black faces to be involved in tech, mm-hmm. uh, we need more jobs within the tech industry, but it's, it felt like a program that was going to see the young people as whole people um, and wanting to understand what the lived reality was, how that applied to the skills that were being learned, uh, how those skills can be applied to create a better society based on your own viewpoint and experience. And so um, it felt like a timely intervention when we think about the hype that's happening around artificial intelligence and all the systems that we talked about earlier. um, If having young people who are systemically being educated to think about technological systems in ways that center where they live, where they're born, how they were raised, uh, what resources they need to be able to be vibrant contributors to their neighborhood and community. Um, I got the call from Kalisha, and I'm like, yes, when do we start, right? And so I just want to I want to say something really quick. So Kalisha and I go way, way, way back. We didn't know each other very well, but it's so ironic that we're in this space right now. We were in high school going to, like, the machinist training institute and writing like articles about like focus hopes like new program right when they were thinking about like new technological systems and so we've been thinking about this for a very long time and so the fact that it landed us here in our mm, ages and, uh, (laughs) and that we're able to try and create an environment for young people that, you know, there's been a gap, right? Uh, I expected, I don't know about you, but I expected when I was coming out of high school and learning about these new systems for our young people to be so much further along in the ways that they were learning about those systems. And so, you know, uh, we want to create a mechanism for young people to be seen, not watched, to not contribute to massive surveillance uh, programs, um, And to have like critical thinking being sharpened, we have to understand that we're in a challenge, we're in a fight to advance our critical thinking. When you have all these systems that are being designed to replace the way we think um, and to be, you know, shaped by tech companies, uh, billionaires, right, white billionaires, if I'm honest, um, if we don't get ahead of that, then we're not going to have a contributing populace of young people who are contributing to the betterment of Detroit and society, uh, and then they'll just become cogs in a wheel or drones in the system, and that's not the type of education that we're trying to foster through CS for Detroit. So place-based, not just more black bodies, not just more black faces within the industry, but 
young people who are fully whole, fully seen, and can contribute to society in the ways that they feel are most meaningful for their neighborhoods and, and their city. And so um, it's a whole, and, and I'll just finally say literacy, right? We always talk about literacy challenges um, in Detroit. And so this is another form of literacy. This is advancing literacy using computer science. I just can't not even tell you how excited I am by the way that the three of you have presented this, right? Because when I thought we were going to just be talking about like computer classes, what mm -hmm. I'm hearing you now is preparing the um, young people to be fully functioning adults in any endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. Any Because I'm like the, a very techie 60 year. I love tech, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm most, much more techie than my children. I'm like, <laughs> listen, have you tried this? I'm like, no, mom, you haven't done that yet, right? I just love technology right. and I use it professionally all of the time. And sometimes mm -hmm. we hire people who are really smart people, really gifted people who really struggle with technology. Right. And it's like, okay, can I really hire you for this job if you can't do it? And the final thing, God bless my mother. I always use her as an example, and I'm sorry to use her in this way. My mother was a brilliant person. She was an artist. She was a social worker. Mm -hmm. She was a loving person. She was a philosopher, and she was horrible at technology. Mm -hmm. She liked having it, but she did not know how to use it. And mm -hmm. I think that the extent to which some people are shut out of the world because they don't know how to use mm -hmm. it is really significant. So, Can yeah. I say something really quick mm -hmm. to that, Donna? So I'm, I always do this intervention, right? So technology can be anything. This microphone is technology. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, that we hope to do in sharpening our young people's analysis is realizing that there are digital technologies and then there's the technologies that help us just exist. Whether it's the cane you walk on, our languages, technology, uh, the way we function as media. You see what I'm saying? So it's all, not all the just way that digital we do like our cities is technology. Exactly. But I just really. As an artist, she was using artistic tools. She's a sculptor. Exactly. She was a painter. She could do all of that, and right. those technologies worked. Right. And so, so that's why. I want to talk about not. the Luddites, right? There's a book right. called Blood in the Machine that I want to recommend everybody reads, right? And it talks about the Luddites. And the Luddites were like these folks that were like being, the narrative has shifted to make it pe people that just hate technology. But really what they were were folks that made technology accountable. They didn't want abusive technologies. They didn't want violent technologies. They didn't want surveillance technologies. And so I consider myself a Luddite. I consider myself someone who wants to contribute to a tech ecosystem that's humane and healthy and that lets people sharpen their skills in ways that they want to sharpen their skills. And so one way to do that is to recognize that tech is so many things, not just computer science. I think it's also important, too, to recognize the way that we refer or relate to technology is also a technology of technology in the sense that we're used to consuming it. Right? We're used to technology being something that you get, you learn, you figure out. We're not used to being in a place where we can create that technology, and we're definitely not used to being in a place where we, where we can critique that technology. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do with CS for Detroit is to make sure that people, adults, and especially children have the language, the empowerment to say, okay, I see this technology, this is what I don't like, this is what I would like to change, and who do I go to talk to about that? And I think one thing that we avoid a lot is that the way our society is set up is a technology, right? The, the systems and the structures that control 
if you can talk to the CEO or not, if you actually have participation in how that thing is designed. A lot of that is a technology that can be understood. Coercive. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a technology that can be resisted, right? But if you don't know that you can disagree with the iPhone, you don't know that you can disagree with the way that these things are coming into your world, then you kind of just accept and reject or deny, right? And then you have no place for curiosity, right? You have no place to be excited, to be engaged, because you didn't really know that that was a conversation that could be had. You know, I had to correct my mm -hmm. Google map because Google kept sending people to the wrong address. And so one Sunday morning I woke up and I was like, let me research how to correct a Google map. Mm -hmm. And I did, and I felt so empowered to not <laughs> constantly have exactly. deliveries. This is during the pandemic when everything was being delivered mm -hmm. to the wrong address, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where I think we always do see ourselves as powerless and consumers. And then one morning I woke up empowered to do mm -hmm. something uh -huh. and make a change. And I, I wonder if more of us should be trying to push yes. back against technology in that same way. Yeah, I don't Absolutely. think it's just a should, it's a need. It's a need yeah. too, yeah. yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's the exciting thing about this, the more conversations we have, uh, even in the Out of School Time Collective, the discussion was about mm -hmm. this is bigger than just consuming, this is yeah. bigger than just taking you know, this information, but really creating it, being innovators, pushing back on things that we don't agree with yeah. and ensuring that we see something that's created that's, um, that represents our, our voices and our ideas. So it's, yeah. it's exciting to be a part of yeah. so many groups of people that are interested in, in making changes in this way. Yeah. I want to read some of y'all's words back to y'all and have you respond uh -oh. because it's my favorite thing to do <laughs> um, as an interviewer. Um, you all said... Uh, it's growing implications for learning, chat GPT, generative AI, artificial intelligence algorithms, and their biases have entered the public's lexicon in ways not previously seen. The rising awareness of these tools alongside the ever-present impact of social media have captured our imaginations and elevated our fears. Even as they're entertaining and engaging, mm -hmm. we must also consider the harms they can cause to the well-being of students and families. Mm -hmm. Ooh, y'all was writing. I mean, <laughs> we take were. me back yeah. to that moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so Kalisha has a background in journalism and is just like a phenomenal writer. Um, and both Tawana and I are poets. So the process <laughs> of writing this was there were a lot of words involved. Um, I think for us, it was really important to make sure that we were speaking to what it is that people feel like they already understand and have seen. So what are like the buzzwords that people are already understanding about tech? But then also, what are the, the discomforts, the tension that we were holding? And I think that first conversation we had was probably like a three-hour one of just listing all the this but not that, right? We want um, help, support, but we don't want surveillance and control, right? We want to be entertained. We want to be able to see our families. We also don't want to be disconnected from the people sitting right next to us because we're so busy being entertained. Mm -hmm. um, and I think carrying those and like requiring it to be something that we are critically reflective of was something that we were trying to like elucidate in that writing. Um, but also this idea of like how important it is to to like we were just saying earlier, be really really clear about what technology you're taking in and what the objective of te that technology is. I think a lot of times we, you know, we black folks especially, we find something, if it does this one thing really cool, we're like, okay, that's what this thing is for, right? But in reality, there's some optimization function happening in the background where somebody made that thing for a reason, right? And if we're not aware of what that is, we can become prey to that. You know, and Tawana does a lot of work on data justice and on understanding, like, every time you click on your phone, somebody takes that information somewhere. And they do something with that that makes them money, and you just click in all day, right? And mm -hmm. so, what does it what does it mean to really be aware of those things? I think was what we were trying to trying to get at. 
Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to make that dream a reality. Located inside the Stoudemire, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org. Okay, so what's next for CS Detroit? Like, how can folks interact with this? How can parents and students who want to be a part of this become a part? Is there pressure we need to put on DPSCD to put, you know, like, what's next? So DPSCD is actually at the table with us. Um, Our uh, senior director for CS and STEM enrichment is actually here in the room with us today. Hey, LaShawn. Uh, Hey, LaShawn, who's a member of our steering committee. Uh, And we are, our conversations with the school district will continue for how how we go about growing this effort to ensure that more students have access uh, to these learning opportunities. Right, So, so right now you're in five schools? No, it's 30, see, computer science is taught in 30 schools schools, across the district. So our goal is to grow that and to help build the capacity of teachers through professional learning opportunities and training. Um, But we're also looking at out-of-school time opportunities. So we have about a dozen organizations that are at the table with us to form a a form of a community of practice to talk through um, how we can work collectively to make changes because uh, we want to eliminate competition. I'm, I, I, I believe that um, innovation is sparked through collaboration and not competition, as you were referring to earlier, Donna. And so this was like the first time we were told by this group of um, organizations that they actually had a chance to sit down and talk about like what a, what a joint vision would look like, mm-hmm. the type of change that they want to make in the community, what kind of policies they want to see created and funding that are needed is needed to serve the young people that they serve and to reach more young people. So that is continuing to grow. uh, And we're looking forward to um, joint activities. Um, Hopefully, um, CS Education Week, which is the week of December 4th of this Mm -hmm. year, will be able to offer a joint program to the public, um, inviting young people and adults to learn about these organizations and what they have to offer. And then um, we'll continue to plant seeds. Our city's historian, who we all know, Jamon Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, has worked with us to create the innovations tour that examines the contributions of Detroiters um, to CS and STEM over the decades. And we're actually going to test that with our colleagues at DPSCD this week. Uh, it's a two-hour bus tour. So we're, our goal is for that to turn into a, um, a field trip experience for, for children and youth in, within the school district and their teachers, um, hopefully beginning next year. And we have a variety of other things that we're creating. Those are just a few. We have um, a mural that we have to get back to planning and organizing that we want to engage conversations around what we're, what we're discussing right now with, um, with the broader community to gain their insights and yeah, it, it's it it the the possibilities around this are endless. The student leadership team. Oh, the student leadership team. Oh, Come please on, forgive I me, Chanel. We 
So yes, yeah, so we have this amazing group of 12 young people from around the city that have launched our inaugural citywide student leadership team. And we just launched two weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, Dr. BB is their senior advisor mm-hmm. and doing an amazing job teaching our young people all around, all about computing. We had our first session uh, and we'll be meeting again this Saturday. And so um, we'll eventually be able to bring those young people to the forefront to connect to members of the community to share their insights about what this can look like and what the possibilities are around yeah. this effort. And that student leadership team, we're trying to make this a conversation that they're having, right? Because it's easy for adults to decide what computer science education needs to look like. Um, But we're actually walking them through a design process so that they can um, envision for themselves what they think computer science education can and should look like based on what their world is, right? Because we all have been kids before. We all, you know, have grown up a little bit. But none of us have been students in 2023, right? We haven't been teenagers in 2023. Um, So that initiative is really to to bring that perspective um, to make sure they're represented, right? And make sure that whatever we create isn't, immediately antiquated because we are all, you know, over a certain age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know about her. Over she over a certain age. I'm, <laughs> I am over a certain age. I, I was on the um, a Zoom call earlier with somebody who was really upset about getting to be 40. I was laughing. Anyway, so um, my question is, you talked about 30 schools that computer science is in. That's super exciting. How do you know which schools? Is it on the website? Um is it publicized? Are these all middle school and high schools? Do you have elementary schools where this is being taught? This is elementary through high school. Oh, so wow. I think there are about 10 high schools that offer um, computer science education. And that list, I, I don't have that list, but I think I can. we can get a hold of that list to be just, able to Just share. for clarity, this is not something that like we've done. This right. is the current no, state I, of things. No, I understand. Um, and it's relatively low in comparison to other districts. Right. Um, as a grandmother with a grandchild in the district, I'd just like to know if her school <laughs> is one of those schools that is so blessed. But that's to that's to Kalisha's point, right? Well, there hasn't been this like synchronized effort to make sure that yeah. all that information mm-hmm. is accessible yeah, to right. a parent, grandparent, even students. And so hopefully with CS4 Detroit, we can be kind of a nucleus to ensuring that that information is more readily accessible. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity, I have to be honest with you. Like I said, I come at it um, running an organization and working with young people in the community who may need this and want right. this. So many young people are interested in computer education, but now right. I understand that it's also just part of a building block of um, of academic growth or intellectual growth it's not mm-hmm. necessarily leading to computer com- careers right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the absence of that leaves me even more concerned than I was before we sat down um, mm-hmm. understanding this means some students are going to start behind the eight ball mm-hmm. now I have to be really honest my granddaughter is five years old she'll be six in um, a few weeks so I guess she's six yep. but she's like an expert on Roblox mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. Talks to my husband. She can beat him on Roblox. She likes to play it all the time. And mm-hmm. I look at young people being able to use these computerized devices and being mm-hmm. so proficient in those things. Does that contribute to um, computer or tech awareness, or is that something that is completely separate from tech awareness? It the, depends on the technology. Yeah, mm-hmm. the right. research is kind of split on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends on technology. You could They could be doing a mundane, repetitive task that's not contributing to creative and critical thinking or they could be doing something that's uh, pushing for those skills I always laugh you know um, and someone else said it when we were at a uh, CS for uh, for all conference recently 
learned how to code on MySpace. You know what I'm saying? I thought I was a me coder. Too. I, I thought coding. I was a coder. On MySpace. You know, it's, right. And so when the MC said that, I was like, me too. I thought I was going to have a we career in coding. Because we was putting all kind of stuff. All but, kind of you know, stuff. I realized I, I didn't I didn't learn to code yeah. from MySpace. <laughs> I just copied and pasted. And so it just depends on what skills are being sharpened throughout that process. Sometimes Speak the tech to is going all Petty. I was coding. <laughs> talking about copying and pasting. But have you coded a website recently? You know what? Right. Mind your business, Doctor BB. As an educator, Mind as an educator, what all. makes it learning is that if it keeps happening, right? right. It needs to be distributed. But he also, does it all the time, often. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the difference between you leveraging technology as a tool and and you becoming a tool of technology. Yeah. Mm, and yeah. so yeah, you learn when you're forced to think outside the box and use your creative skills. If you're using a tool like a calculator or anything and you're just punching in numbers and memorizing, you know, then you're not you're not sharpening. It's it's the space between um, consumer and curator. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. what we've seen, especially of these these younger generation who have been on YouTube since they were born, they become really proficient technicians in the sense that they have the dexterity to move these things around, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the experience and the inspiration to understand how these things work, right? So unfortunately, more so what a lot of this technology is often creating is people who can fly drones for the military, right? Because they have the thumbs for it, but they don't necessarily have the skills or the access to really become the person that redesigns what the drones are looking like or understanding like that deeper level. So we have to be careful of that as parents, I think. I think we have to be careful as parents. I'm just wondering, like, I would imagine that some of these things prepare you to grow, that some of this exposure that young people have could be a building block to something more if they... If we if we are intentional about that, you if have to nourish it correctly. Absolutely, intentionality there's, there's, there's is what matters. There's students in um, in wealthier districts and wealthier families mm-hmm. who are taking those baseline skills and building mm-hmm. them into something mm-hmm. new, while other students are sort of kept at that baseline. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't want to, to minimize the learning and the capabilities of students because you know. I mean, the dexterity, they're not just like creating characters and all of this kind of stuff. It's, right. it's not just doing one thing. It's all of this critical thinking about what I'm going to do that really amazes me for somebody so young. But the mm-hmm. question is, how do we leverage that? Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me use one ex- personal example. When my son was born, there was PlayStation 1. I don't know if y'all remember that, PlayStation 1. Yes. And, and he was like two years old when I bought him a PlayStation 1. And I did it for the reason you were saying, Donna, manual dexterity. I wanted him to, you know, I, I thought the little toys that they gave you wasn't enough. I wanted him to have this sharpened, creative, critical thinking and be able to rationalize and have manual dexterity. But as he got older, I told him, for every hour you play the game, you have to read a book. And so you have to have that wraparound service. It can't just be sticking them in front of a technology. And even if they're advanced in playing whatever game or learning that skill, there has to be all the other components Mm -hmm. as well. Otherwise, it's just like the schooling system, right? You learn to take a test. You learn to do a thing, but it doesn't teach you to think outside the box. And so that's what we want. We want young people and adults who have a well-rounded analysis that lets them take everything around them in, synthesize it, and have a critical thought around what they just learned. And so, you know, so yeah, it's like these things should be a tool. My phone should be a tool, not an extension of my limb. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of people where these are extensions of your limb. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) All right. Let's give it up for Tawana Petty, Dr. Chanel Beebe, and Kalisha Davis. 
Thank y'all so much for joining us. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. All right. It's time for my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the show. It's time for shout outs. Uh, anybody got anybody they want to shout out? Kalisha, we'll start with you. You got any shout outs? Sure. I want to give a shout out to my sister and friend, Gracie Xavier, for opening this weekend, a yes. wonderful exhibition of her arts and photography. It was wonderful. Please check it out. And at Ulamun Cafe in Hamtramck, I really enjoyed that. It was so fancy. Yes, I was there. it's always nice to be, mm-hmm. you know, among Around friends and family. So, yeah, and I was at Chanel's opening yeah. the, the exhibit that she curates <laughs> at over at the congregation. Because she fancy the same too. day because you know she's always doing always, always. a number always. of amazing things. Multidisciplinary so, doctor. Yeah, so shout out to my sisters that are in the room. Yeah, <laughs> Doctor Chanel, you got any shout out? Um, several. I'll pick one. Um, I want to shout out Source into Plowshares. It's a gallery yeah. in downtown Detroit um, that is one of my favorite galleries because it's very community-based. So they have these political artist meetups where we get to talk about things going on. And as a function of those conversations, we're actually doing a show called Community Power, which is all about the community speaking back to DTE. And that opens this Thursday. It'll be open for the rest of the month. And it's artwork, poetry, um, and general installations around the effect that DTE's monopoly has had on people. Um, our amazing Tawana Petty will be performing at the opening, uh, the opening event that we have this Thursday. But like I said, it'll be up I think until December 12th, um, and it's probably at least like 50 uh, local artists who all have something, mm. some gripe or something to say about DTE. Um, so I really want to shout out that gallery for making space for the, that conversation, and that healing, but also for like putting their space where their mouth is, right, and giving us space to to show and display how we feel about what's going on. I love it, Tawana Petty. You got any shout outs? I want to shout all y'all out, uh, Donna, Orlando, Kalisha, <laughs> Chanel, um, Dr. Beebe. Uh, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be in a space with people who would like minds, like principles, like values. You know, it's not all that easy to come by. And so I'm just deeply grateful to have this opportunity to be on the CS for Detroit steering committee and to like just collaborate with y'all in meaningful ways. All right, Donna, you got shout outs. Yes, I want to shout out Malcolm X no. <laughs> for the message to grassroots. We're right. still talking about it, right? right. And yes. I just think that it's so amazing to have um, a speech that has stood, withstood the test of times and still reminds us to be vigilant. And to that extent, I want to shout out the Bog Center for hosting both Orlando yeah. and myself on two panels, intergenerational panels, which are really exciting because yes. I love having that dialogue with young people. Um, and um, Myrtle Thompson was the person who facilitated both of those conversations. Nice. So I want to, um, you know, um, shout her out. And uh, Orlando Bailey, like I said, I don't know how I can keep up with you, but you are doing a number of just amazing work. I don't know how many panels you were on on Saturday. Um, and then finally, I just want to shout out these panelists. You guys are all brilliant and Thank doing you. amazing work. And I've learned something so new today about the, the, what you're doing with technology, I suppose I should have read it more deeply, but I kind of pigeonholed it into this one thing, and it's so much bigger and more significant than I imagine. Thank you for coming and joining us here and for the work you're doing. 
Thank you, I would Donna. like to really quickly not only shout out our panelists, which Donna did. Thank y'all so much. I, I feel smart when I'm around y'all. It's so great. <laughs> but, you know, this is a live podcast event. And so it does. this does not happen without people doing a lot of work behind the scenes. So I would like to shout out our on-site producer today, Griffin from WDET, for being with us and for making sure that we're heard and recorded, as well as Sarah Johnson, who is the Authentically Detroit producer. Donna stole my thunder. I was going to shout out the Bog Center too in the uh, conversation on Malcolm X. It's, you know, it's so funny. Donna and I, we don't get to do a whole lot of stuff together outside of this podcast, so it was just really cool hanging out with Donna twice yes. on Saturday. It was really fun because we don't get asked to come to stuff together. Uh, you would think we would, but it's always Donna gets invited to this and then I'm invited to something else and we don't really do things together. <laughs> but we thank you so much for listening, everybody. And until next time, catch the wave.